be made new, and we will praise your faithfulness of old. We just thank you for the promises you've given us. We thank you for your word. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds now as we study John chapter 9 and the first seven verses. We just pray that you would help us each to, to draw from this scripture uh, what you have for each of us in it. So we thank you. We lift up our time now to, before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I want to start today by simply reading our passage. And if you have your Bible, we're going to read from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pews in front of you, or the words are going to be up on the screen. You can just follow along. So uh, multiple options, or it's probably on your phone too as well. So John 9, 1 through 7, I'm reading from the ESV, reads this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, I think this is a pretty familiar passage for a lot of you. I think a lot of us have have read this story, probably heard it in Sunday school or children's church or kids Bible club or something, and, and have heard this many times. But it's a fascinating account, and it's a great passage to stop and, and think deeper about. We're going to see a healing today, you know, spoiler alert, the name of the message is the healing, so we're, we, we're going to see this healing that takes place, but this is actually the sixth of seven signs in the book of John. If you remember when we started this, we said we were going to see seven signs that John distinctly calls out in the gospel, and this is the sixth of those seven, and if you're like me, you're probably sitting there going, what are the seven? So, quick review, I think we're going to have it on the screen here for you. The first one, if you remember, in John chapter 2, was Jesus turning water into wine in Cana. And then in John chapter 4, we learned about Jesus healing an official son. And then also uh, going on in chapter 5, we saw the healing of a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, we saw the feeding of the multitude. Later in John chapter 6, and this is the only one I think that's not called out as a specific sign, we see Jesus walking on water. And in John 9, as we're seeing today, we're going to see this healing of a man born blind. And then when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So those are the seven signs that are in John. And why are they written? Well, John 20, 31 tells us this. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of this, that we might have life in his name. Now, before we dive further into these verses today, I want to read the passage again in a different perspective. Some of you might remember uh, Bob Deffenbaugh. Bob's spoken here several times at First Colony Bible Chapel, and he's involved with the work of of, uh, Bible.org. And he had a really interesting perspective on on this passage. And he wrote, uh, when he did a, a sermon on this, he said, what would it be like to think about this passage from the perspective of the blind man. 
And so rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and find better words, I'm going to read you what Bob wrote about that because I thought he did a really good job. So this is Bob Deffenbaugh's version of what this passage might be like if read from the, uh, from the uh, perspective of the blind man. It says this, The blind man makes his way to his designated spot, the place where he stations himself daily and begs for alms. He may even sleep in the same place where he spends his days. Most of the beggars have the benefit of their sight, so that when they see someone who is a regular donor, they can certainly start to make their appeal. Likewise, there's many, probably, tightwads out there who aren't worth the effort of making an appeal, and so they don't. Strangers are at least a possible source of income. What a vantage point from which to observe humanity. The difference with this man is that he cannot see his prospective donors coming. He has to listen very carefully to hear someone coming, or maybe rely on the person next to him to you know, hear they may say, call out to somebody, and he says, oh, there's a donor there, I can do likewise, and he can make that same appeal. So he has that perspective. But then uh, Bob goes on and says, the sound of footsteps is heard by this blind beggar. And then he hears an even more encouraging clue. The footsteps cease nearby. He has been seen. He knows it. We're not told that the man asked for money, but it may well be that he does. He must overhear the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Who sinned, this man or his parents? He hears one of the bystanders ask. I wonder if the blind man has ever asked himself that same question. I suspect the blind man is curious at this point. He probably has heard every theory on suffering. If the answer he hears is not entirely new, it's certainly very encouraging. Because he hears this, uh, neither the sin of this man nor of his parents is the explanation for his physical infirmity. This man's condition has been sovereignly ordained so that the works of God might be revealed through him. Can you imagine the chill going down that man's spine? He doesn't know what the outcome can be of this encounter, but it sure sounds hopeful at this point, doesn't it? Well, as Jesus utters the words, he begins drawing nearer to the blind beggar. And then he pauses beside him. You've got to imagine the excitement's building. And then the rabbi spits. Perhaps the blind beggar flinches, having been spat upon before by probably a self-righteous Pharisee or maybe a mischievous youth. Ha! He missed, he might be thinking, somewhat triumphantly. The rabbi, for this blind man would have certainly overheard that, now stooped down, and he's doing something on the ground beside him, right where the spit landed. Almost before the man realizes what's happening, two mud pies are applied, one to each eye. Is this not adding insult to injury? Is this some kind of cruel joke? The man who has placed the clay on his eyes then instructs him to go to a pool named Siloam and to wash the mud from his eyes. He promises no miracle. He says nothing to the crowd. He and his disciples silently slip away. The blind beggar makes his way to the pool of Siloam, just as he's been instructed. We know that this was a necessity, so it may or may not have been an act of faith. After all, he's got to get this stuff out of his eyes. At no time in the text as we have it, does Jesus promise this man a healing. He does not tell the crowd that a great miracle is about to happen. And so far as we can tell, the miracle took place while this man was alone, washing his eyes. It's not until later that 
uh, it seems that uh, people hear of this healing. Can you imagine this man's amazement, though? (laughs) As he washes the mud from his eyes, he sees light. He sees people. (laughs) He has eyesight for the first time in his life. No doubt, he knows the way to the pool and back by memory. But now he can actually see those things he may have bumped into or touched with his fingers along the way. (laughs) Can you imagine him making his way home, pausing to take in the beauty of a rose that he's only been able to smell up to this point? What a day for this man, blind all of his life until Jesus sees him. That's right where verse 1 actually started. It takes us back. Bob finishes commentary there on that. But that's where we're going to pick up. It's an interesting perspective to think about it from the eyes of the blind man there. But let's delve a little deeper into the passage. Let's look at some of the verses. And it can be very easy to go past verse 1 right away. Because verse 1 says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And it might be easy to say, yep, just trying to get to verses 6 and 7 in the healing. Let's go. Let's get past verse 1. But don't skip this verse because this is an amazing thing that's taking place here. It's unclear to us chronologically if what's happening right now and in in, at the start of chapter 9 is directly after the events of chapter 8 or if there's been some sort of, of time passage between those two, between the two. Uh, no one's actually sure on that one. But either way, it's an amazing thing. Because if you think back to last week, where did John Taylor leave us in chapter 8? Remember, what were the Pharisees doing? They'd all picked up stones. They were ready to kill Jesus, weren't they? They were ready to stone him and kill him and then it says Jesus hid himself and slipped away. Now, I don't know about you, but if that had been me and Jesus' situation, that would have been absolutely the most foremost thing on my mind. It would have consumed every thought of mine. I wouldn't be thinking about or looking at or doing anything else other than thinking about these people are out to kill me. But not Jesus. Even in the midst of all that turmoil, as he's passing by, he notices a blind man, a man born blind from birth, a man who probably society has ignored almost every single day. Jesus is said to have noticed or seen the blind man. (laughs) I'm sure when he saw him, it was Jesus. I'm sure he knew exactly what the infirmity was, and I'm sure he knew exactly how long this man had been blind as well. (laughs) It's an amazing thing to think about what Jesus knows. But Jesus pauses, and he looks at him, And he stares at him more intently. And I think finally at that point, the disciples probably stop as well. So I want us to stop and think about this for a second. Jesus paused and stopped and looked at the blind man. Let's you and I look at this. There's a lesson in this verse for us. And it's this. Are we stopping? Are we seeing people? Are we present with people in our ministry? Are we seeing them? Or do we get busy and and bypass them? I was challenged about this this summer. I was, um, Jennifer and I were with my parents and my sister at uh, Mount Hermon Christian Conference Center out in Santa Cruz, California. Some of you have been there. And uh, one of the speakers, uh, Michael Metcalf, was there. And he challenged everybody about this topic of being present with people in our ministry. And I read this and I had to stop again. I had to take a look at myself and say, am I doing that? Am I enacting what Jesus portrayed? Am I stopping my being present with people? And I had to admit, I didn't like the picture I had when I saw myself. I'm not always present. A lot of times, stuff happens. Or, 
hey, the clock, there's something that's happening. I've got to get, I gotta get to that or I've got to get distracted by something else. It's not always my strong suit to do that. I've been trying to make a change of that so, since I heard that this summer. But I'm also not perfect. So if I have not been always present with you, I apologize, but I am trying on that one. But I think that's the lesson for all of us. I'd ask each of you today, are you present with people? Are you seeing people or are we ignoring people? Do we stop and take a look and see the people that maybe maybe society ignores? Or are we going to be present with those people like Jesus showed us? Pretty good lesson in verse 1. Well, let's move on to verse 2. Because it tells us this. The disciples ask what we might consider to be a very odd question. Because they asked him and said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind? He was born blind. They're looking for a cause. They're looking for a reason to blame for the blindness. The disciples believe what was a popular notion at the time was that if there was some sort of suffering or uh, affliction, it was due to sin. And they, they, they saw only two options. And I love the two options because they remember the man was born blind. So their first option they came up with was, well, this man sinned. Well, that means he had to have sinned in the womb. I, I, I don't think that took place. And the other option was, well, his parents sinned. They think like Job's friend. Remember, Job's friend said, the man's suffering and therefore it must be due to sin. But then listen to verse 3, because Jesus disconnects sin from this suffering. It says, Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now let me be clear, there are times when a specific sin has a consequence that leads to suffering, but that's not the case here. But blindness, in this case, is not a divine punishment from God. Let me give you an example of what would be. Think of Miriam. Miriam rebelled against Moses out in the wilderness, and remember what happened. She got leprosy. That would be a case of that. That's not the case that we're looking at here with this blind man. Tragically, sometimes today you do see children that do suffer for the consequences of parents' sin. Think of uh, like, like crack babies uh, that might be born with a deformity because the parents didn't get off drugs uh, while they were uh, during a pregnancy or something. Those are tragedies. But the idea of a child being punished for the sins of the parents is foreign to Scripture. Listen to Ezekiel 18.20. Let me show you this. It says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. There's not a direct correlation there. I like the way John Piper put it this way when he was talking about this verse. He said, Jesus' answer or explanation is that the blindness lies not in past causes, but in future purposes. It's going to lie in some future purposes. Let me read to you from one verse from the message, uh, the message version of the Bible in verse 3. They put it this way. Sometimes you get a pretty good perspective from that. It says this, You're asking the wrong question, Jesus said. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. God sovereignly chose to use this man's affliction for his own glory. And that's what we're going to see. And I think one of the hopes that we have as a Christian is that one day all the suffering will go away. We've, uh, we've read Revelation 21, 1 through 4 several times. I know in the, the first service, I think someone even a couple weeks ago uh, had read this. But let me read that to you because it's just a great hope for us. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. It's an incredible promise that we have as a believer that we can look forward to someday. But let me stop right here. Because before we go on to verse 4 and, and continue the passage, I want to stop and talk about a question that I think comes up with this passage. When you read this sometimes, there is a, a difficult question that might pop in your mind. It's, and it's this. Why would God allow this child to be born with this defect? Blindness in this case. It's a very difficult, difficult question to ponder. I know I had to stop. I had to pray about it a lot. I talked to John Tillery about it, um, studied a lot about it, and then I did what any good uh, younger sibling would do. I went to my older brother and talked to him about it. My brother Ron is an ordained pastor of a church out in Antioch, California, so he's a trusted resource on, on that one. So thank you, Ron, if you're online. But what I came with, what I ended up with, is this. What I've been able to discern in my mind is it the fact that we live in a fallen world. We've got to remember, God created a perfect world, but man sinned, Adam sinned, and brought imperfection into the world. And because we live in a fallen world, I would say not perfect things happen. However, God can use anything for his glory. And I think that's the point Jesus is making here, that God's glory can be shown through this. Now, I do not claim to have all the answers about suffering. And I can't fully understand what it's like for a parent to deal with a child that's been born with an affliction like blindness. But there are those who can. And there's those who can relate to that and can tell us about the goodness of God. We sang about when trials come here a few minutes ago. We can learn from those folks and we can learn to apply those things into our own lives. And it can help us draw closer to God so that in any circumstance we find ourselves, we can have the strength of God with us. Matter of fact, while I was studying for the sermon, I came across a book, and it's this one. And I think uh, Scott's going to have the picture for us. Yeah. So it's a book called Just the Way I Am. And it's, about, uh, it's written by a lady named Krista Horning. And Krista is, well, in the upper left-hand picture, you can see Krista's picture there, and then that's her with her family in the, the lower left. And then um, you can see the book cover on the, on the front there. But it's an amazing book. Krista was born with a severe case of Apert syndrome. And she wrote this book to help people with disabilities to understand God's goodness. And if you go through the book, it, it, it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's just a, it's a simple picture, uh, maybe with some, uh, of someone with a disability, and a verse to go along with it. Some really encouraging verses and some, some verses that really help us focus on the Lord. And you can learn a lot from people like that. And I want to read this to you, and I've got to admit, I've got a towel up here because I have not yet been able to practice this without crying a little bit. So, <laughs> so you might want to have a tissue ready too because I'm going to read to you a little bit because I think we can learn from Krista's parents, from her mom. Her mom writes a part in the back and I want to read a little bit about that and then I want to read you a little bit from her pastor that, that wrote a, a, a piece at the end too. And I think you can probably, all of us can relate at some level to some of the... Some of the, the uh, uh, the emotions and, and some of the things that they, they're dealing with. So this is what it says. Krista's story, and this is by her mom. 
She says, our first child was born in the summer of 1987. I dreamed of being a mother all my life and was thrilled the time had finally come. But I was not prepared for what happened that day. Instead of a newborn's cry, as she took her first breath, there was only silence. The doctor held my baby up to me, quickly pointing out her misshapen skull, hands, and feet. With concern she could not hide, the doctor told us our child was very sick. She has obvious defects, which means there may be many more we cannot see. Gasping for breath, our baby girl was hurried to intensive care. Soundless tears fell as the commotion in the room faded, and we took in the sobering news. The next day, a surgeon studied her protruding eyes, sunken cheeks, and fused fingers and toes, and he concluded she had Apert syndrome, a, a, a rare genetic disorder. This is the worst case I have seen, he said, and he told us. Your daughter has, has severe bone deformities all over her body, which will require years of reconstructive surgery. You may think I can perform miracles and you will walk out of here with a normal child, but that will never happen. The only thing I know for sure is this world will be a cruel place for her. Our hearts ached as the doctor's words went on and on. There would be hearing loss, speech problems, mental delays, and much more. As if all this was not enough, he even predicted our marriage would end. Doubt and fear consume my thoughts. How much pain and anguish can we bear? Why was she born this way? Life seemed hopeless, absolutely hopeless. We chose the name Krista, which means follower of Christ, before she was born. And now, we long for that to be her identity. But what would that future hold? Would there only be anger toward God who created her this way? Or would she truly follow Christ? I asked the same question to myself. I had been a believer all my life. Was this how God repaid me for my allegiance? All my hopes for a normal life filled with ballet, piano, and school looked petty now. I was desperate to hear God's voice, just to know that he loved me and was still for me. Nothing else really mattered. Clinging to a promise from his word, we dedicated Krista's life to the Lord. Doctor visits were endless. Surgery followed surgery. Krista had hardly recovered from one operation before going in for the next. At times, they appeared to be unproductive, making only slight changes in her quality of life. When Krista was two years old, a specialist examined her fingers, which were joined together like mittens on her hand. He separated them one surgery at a time, leaving a thumb and three fingers on each hand. Now they were apart, but still stiff and unbending, attached to wrist bones and arm bones and shoulder bones that did not move either. Krista's facial deformity made her noticeable wherever she went. People stared, pointed, and laughed. What's wrong with you? Why do you look so funny? Their taunts stung. Their words hurt. Anger burned inside. I dreaded going to public places, since even innocent trips to the grocery store grew into major events. Krista begged to stay home, avoiding the embarrassment and rejection. I shared the heaviness of Krista's heart, of her hurt, and I wished I could bear the load myself. Why did people have to look at her that way? Why couldn't they see who she really was? 
I long for my girl to have an ordinary face, for the anger to go away. Every day, we struggled to listen to God's voice more than the world's. I know you and made you. You are mine. We held on to the words, and gradually, we saw that God has a purpose. He had a purpose, even for her disfigured face. In all these years with Apert Syndrome, we have known God's greatness in helping Krista endure over 60 surgeries. We have seen his tenderness in family and friends who love and encourage us. We've experienced his grace in preserving our marriage. We have grasped the truth of his word hidden in our hearts. We have a hope and a future. And now I know why Krista was born. But what about Krista? Let me read you what Krista's pastor wrote. She goes to a church out in uh, Minnesota. It says, Nearly a decade has passed since I first met Krista and her family. Her teen years proved to be fruitful and life-shaping. For Krista, Apert syndrome was not a curse to be endured. It was an asset to be invested. Her maker had a plan for her life. And that plan was, unbe- was be- unfolding before our eyes. Her heart had been uniquely shaped in a way that gave her special understanding and special love and special influence with other disabled children. She volunteered her time to bless these children and the organizations that serve them. Our church has many members, and Krista is one of them. There are a variety of gifts and a variety of service. Krista has been given her portion, and she has not wasted it. God used her in her teen years for the benefit and building up of his church. And now among the first fruits of her adult life is this book. It's laden with the truth that brought comfort and hope, still reflected on her face and resident in her heart. May God grant the same comfort and hope to all who read this book. And may the fruit of its author's life abound all the more for his glory and the joy of his people to all generations. It's an incredible story to just read through this and to read some of those comments at the end, to read the, and see the pictures and read the scripture that God put on this girl's heart to help out kids with disabilities. It's an incredible thing. If this book's of help to you and you want to look at it, uh, you know, come see me later on. I'm, I'm planning to put it in the, the church library as well, so anyone can check that out. But really, really worth uh, some time to, to look through that, especially if you're dealing with something like that. Again, I don't do that just to make you cry. But I read that so that you can see that God can use any situation. As you heard, Krista saw it not as, uh, as an, an infirmity, but as something to be invested. And she used what God had given her in the, in the, the way, unique way that God had shaped her heart to help others. Um, God can use any situation. And I think that's what we need to, to take from that. Now, Got to get back to our verse, sorry. Getting back to our, our passage in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 4, I think, gives us kind of an answer to the disciples' question of why this man was born blind. Because Jesus refocuses the disciples on the true priority of doing the works of God. And Jesus is doing the works of God. The disciples were focused on what caused the blindness. Jesus was forward-focused on how to display the power of God through this person. 
Bob Deffenbaugh, who I read earlier, put it this way. To the disciples, a glance at this man suggested a theological puzzle. To Jesus, a look in his direction presented a challenge, an opportunity for work. They reasoned, how did he get that way? But Jesus answered, what can we do for him? And I love in verse 4, if you see it in there, it says, we must do the works of God, of him who sent me. And, and John often in his gospel uses that word must. It's, it's a command to us to be doing it. And notice it says, while it is day, we've got to do these things. In other words, there's some urgency for it. There's an urgency to us to do the works of God while it is day, while we still have time, in other words, to do that. I love the contrast of day and night or light and darkness. If you remember back in John 1, John identified Jesus as the light of the world. And that reference to night that's coming is, I think, a reference to when Jesus would be departing the world. It's only going to be a few months from here that Jesus actually goes and is crucified. The light would be taken from them for a while, but not forever. And until that time, we need to be lights in the world. Listen to Philippians two thirteen to 15. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's an incredible thing that God has called us to be. We need to be lights in the world. And verse 5 goes back and tells us, Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And we looked at this, uh, Benoit Benny did a few weeks ago, did a whole passage on this from uh, chapter 8. And so I'm not going to jump into that right now. I'll refer you to to that message for a little deeper uh, depth on that topic. Because we're going to get to finally verses 6 and 7. The healing, that's actually the message title in the bulletin there. Verses 6 and 7 say this, let me read them again. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus had earlier used saliva uh, in some healings. If you go back to the book of Mark, Mark 7, uh, he healed a deaf and blind man, and then he used saliva in that. And then again in Mark 8, he did it again. He he'd used saliva in a in thing. But only here in John chapter 9... Does Jesus make mud out of the spittle? And we're not told why. <laughs> we aren't actually told why he did it this way. But I think there's a lesson for us. Jesus changed his methods of how he did his, his miracles. He never did two of them the same way. It was always a different method. Uh, and I think that was done on purpose. Because the power, the thing that's being conveyed, is that Jesus is the Messiah. The power is in God. It's not in the method. You know, I don't know about you. Can you just imagine man would try to take advantage of this? Can you imagine if Jesus did the same, used the same method? Somebody would say, oh, well, here's the method to do it, and would try to make it, take advantage of it, make money. I was thinking about it. I'm like, can you think of some of the uh, crazy books that would be written or, or seminars that we've done? Uh, I, the, the two titles I came up with were Don't Spit It, Your Chance to Make Money <laughs> or Turn Your Mud into Millions. I mean, I could just see, I mean, can't you see man doing this? You know, somebody would come up with a, with a seminar or a title or a book like that to try to take advantage of it. And I think that's why Jesus varied it, so that we don't do that. We focus on where the power is. It's from God. <laughs> Leon Morris said, In his ministry to the souls of men, Jesus adopted no stereotyped approach. He dealt with each man as his particular need required. 
We don't know why this was the way that this man particularly needed it, but it was. And I notice again, if you remember from the story, Jesus didn't indicate in advance what he's going to do. Not even to his disciples. They didn't know what was happening. No one was looking for a miracle when, God put, when Jesus put mud on the guy's eyes and told him to go wash. There's no mention that the crowd followed him to the pool of Siloam. It appears the man simply went to wash up as Jesus instructed him to do. And only after the man goes and washes does he get, obtain his sight. The method Jesus used perfectly accomplished what he intended. He intended to heal this blind man, giving him the sight that he had never possessed. But he was going to receive that sight without fanfare or without a crowd around. You might say, why would he do that? Why wouldn't Jesus want it publicized that he was doing all these things? Well, remember the end of chapter 8 again. They're looking to kill him at this point. His time had not yet come. There's still going to be several months to, uh, before that time comes. And so I think he does this miracle in private. I think it's, it's, it's done in private for that reason. But I think there's another thing we can learn from that. And that there's a, a correlation between the man's physical condition is kind of a representation of our spiritual condition. Again, let me reiterate, these signs from John are not a show. It's not the greatest showman out there doing a, doing a performance. The point is that each of us needs to look to the Lord Jesus and say, who is this man? And will we believe, as John's word told us? Will we believe and find life in that? Now, this healing is just the beginning of this whole account. This is actually just the beginning. All of chapter 9 is one big account of this, and the healing is just the first part of that. As a matter of fact, uh, the real focus of the story is going to come in, chapter, in verses 35 to 39 when we're going to see the spiritual condition of the man, which is really the most important thing. What is his spiritual condition before the Lord? Now, this might be the worst spoiler alert again ever, but spoiler alert, the man is saved. He, he's, going to be phys- he's going to be physically and spiritually healed in this, and we're going to see that later on. But listen to what our spiritual condition was. In Ephesians 2, Before we know Jesus, and if you don't know Jesus, this is our spiritual condition. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. (laughs) That's an incredible promise for us. And it's interesting that John does stop in the middle of verse 7 there and tells us, remember, he sent him to the pool of Siloam, and then there's this little parenthesis in there that says, which means sent. The Bible saw fit to tell us to have that little pause to say, why does it stop to tell us the name of this particular pool and the fact that it means sent? Well, I think there's a couple reasons maybe we should consider for that and to think about. I think one is the fact that this pool, uh, if you remember King Hezekiah, back in the Old Testament, had constructed a tunnel from the, from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam to ensure water flowed into Jerusalem. That could be why it was named Sent, as the water was sent from the spring to the pool. It was also the pool that uh, the priest would be sent each year at the Feast of Tabernacles uh, to go draw water from there, potentially uh, symbolizing a blessing to Israel. That's one potential reason why it maybe says um, uh, it's called Sent there. Another could be, it could just be an explanation that Siloam means sense is perhaps a reference to the Messiah, the one, the sent one, who's performing this miracle. Up to this point in John's gospel, there's been considerable emphasis and a whole lot of debate with the Pharisees about whether or not Jesus was sent from the Father to do these things. So that could be another reason why. 
And I think finally there's a, there's a physical and spiritual contrast here of why it tells us that it means sent. Jesus told the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He was sent. And it's certainly true that he had to, be, he had to take that in a very literal, physical sense that he was expected to go wash his eyes. But on a deeper meaning, on that spiritual meaning, I think we can extrapolate that for spiritual cleansing, one has to go to the true Siloam, to the one who was sent by the Father. In other words, we have to come to Jesus, come to the one who was sent to save us from our sins and in whose blood we are saved. Well, as we close, I don't know where you see yourself in this whole story. There's a couple of ways you could see yourself. Maybe God is calling you to see someone. Maybe God is calling you to see people in a whole new way and to help them and to be there and be present with people. Maybe you're like the blind man. Maybe you're physically or spiritually blind today. If you need to see Jesus today, if there's a spiritual need for seeing Jesus, come talk to me or any one of the godly men or women here in the church. We would love to tell you more about how you can know that you are spiritually saved through Jesus Christ. Maybe God is wanting to send you. Maybe you're the sent one. And God's wanting to send you to tell others about salvation in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you find yourself in the midst of your own physical trial, whether it be something you were born with or something that's happened in life or a situation you now find yourself dealing with. Let me read from you again verse 5 from uh, the song we sang earlier. We sang the song right before we started, When Trials Come. And verse 5 reads this. One day all things will be made new. I'll see the hope that you have called me to. And in your kingdom paved with gold, I'll praise your faithfulness of old. Well, I hope this first glimpse into chapter 9, I hope it kind of whets your appetite to come back and hear more. Because we heard about the healing this week. Next week we're going to learn more about the witnesses that get called about this healing. And it's a pretty interesting uh, account to go through as we continue to go through John chapter 9. But as I like to remind you on on, uh, the end of my sermons, And as we clearly saw in this account today, you are not being dismissed. You are being sent. Sent to follow what God has called you to do. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you. We thank you that you uh, can use any of our weaknesses, our infirmities, our faults. Lord, you can use all of those things for your glory. And we just thank you that we could in any way be part of your plan and Lord, help us not to, to waste what you've given us, but Lord, to, uh, to be those who, who notice other people, to be sent to those, uh, to tell others about Christ, to help others that have need. So help us, Lord, to take from this uh, what you have for each of us. Help us to go forward and to uh, bring light into this world, to be lights in this world as you've called us to do. So we just thank you. We commit this rest of our day to you and ask that you would just, uh, just watch over and guide each of us as we go forth now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.